Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. You are listening to our weekly class, Navigate and Master the Prayer Book, with Rabbi Cantor Hilary Chorney. I prepared a class to delve a little bit um, deeper into some topics about having to do with the um, content of some Shabbat morning prayers that we've been taking a look at. Some of the things that I touched at um, content wise that we did not get as deeply into when we touched on them briefly in the content of navigating the sea door. So this is going to take us into Shabbat morning a little bit to the Shabbat morning content, if you want to get out a Shabbat Sidor of some kind. And yeah. it's going to, yeah, in the, yeah, take, take a second to get your Shabbat Sidor. Um, if you, if you want to take a look at 150 together, you can. Uh, and then I'll share the screen in just a moment. So you can look at this on the screen too. And this should look familiar to you. There's some really interesting things about uh, this blessing that starts page 150 in Lev Shalem. Uh, tell me, tell me about where this blessing is. Where are we in the Shabbat morning service when we get to this blessing? At the Shema. We are, are we before or after the Shema? Uh, just before. One, Good. two blessings before. Good. Two blessings before. And technically we are, this is three blessings before, right? This is the bonus blessing. And where are we vis-a-vis the Baruch Hu? After. Right after it, right? Mm-hmm. Very good. This is immediately after the Baruch Hu. In If you've been logging into services lately on Shabbat mornings, then you might have noticed, uh, or at any point during Shabbat mornings during COVID, you might have noticed that this is really where we begin this stretch of Shacharit when we have no interruptions, because we start Shacharit on page 147 and left Shalem at Shochein Ad. And then we go all the way through Uvmakalot Rivavot, through Yishabach, but then we skip Chatzi Kaddish as a Devar Shabik Dushah that requires a minion, and we skip Baruchu. And because we skip those two things, we wind up right here, and this becomes the beginning of our Kriyat Shema section, our recitation of Shema section, right? So this becomes the beginning of the Shema section right here at this blessing, Baruch Hashem Elokeinu Melech It also is something choreographically, too. Right? Because if you back up to, if you skipped Baruchu, or even if you haven't skipped Baruchu, what were you doing at Baruchu? And what were you doing before Baruchu at, y- at Yishtabach, even if you skipped it? You were, you were standing and, and bowing if you had Baruchu, if there was a minion, right? And here, what are we doing at, at uh, Yotzer Or? Sit down. He sits down. This is the part where we sit down uh, in preparation for the Shema. What I didn't bring here, by the way, which would be a great and interesting study for another class, is why it's the case that the rabbis say that you either need to be standing or sitting for the entirety of the Shema. By the way, why do you think that? What's the short reason behind that? For the entirety of the Shema, for all three paragraphs, why do you need to either be standing or sitting for it? So just do it like in one shot. Do it in one shot. And what did you say, Annie? So you're not distracted. You're not distracted. That's a good guess, too. Ed, do you have a guess at why they say? Why do the rabbis say in our literature or in our tradition? Well, you have to be... You know, it's supposed to be oneness with God. So I think if you're standing and sitting, it just kind of breaks that, right? Oh, that is... That's very interesting. That's like the... That 
that I haven't heard before and also is kind of close to the reason. There's a name I don't recognize coming to join us. Let's see if it's somebody new joining us. Hello and welcome. I see there's somebody joining us. Jump on in if you'd like. Um, so, uh, great. So, those are all wonderful reasons and wonderful guesses uh, as to why the Shema all needs to be said sitting or standing when we get there. The rabbinic reason given in our literature and in our tradition is such that no one part of the Shema, specifically no one paragraph uh, anywhere in there, gets given more kavod, more import, more respect than any other part of it. It's such that you wouldn't think that one paragraph of it is more important than another paragraph of it. Interestingly, uh, in post-Enlightenment uh, reform, uh, high church Judaism, so to speak, right, in post-mid-19th century Judaism, that's precisely what winds up happening as a tradition, that we stand up for the first paragraph and then wind up sitting. And in German synagogues in particular, this becomes the practice exactly counter to the tradition um, uh, as proposed in, um, I don't know, it's first in the Mishnah, later in the Talmud, I didn't trace it in, in preparation for this class. But I find that so fascinating, because it's exactly counter to our rabbinic texts that don't want us that to is, put any more import. That is what I grew up with. Yeah, it's just it's such an interesting thing that I that is also my lived practice as well. Um, great. So here we are located at Yotzer or at, right before these paragraphs of the Shema. Um, uh, and Annie and, and myself remembering uh, sitting down in preparation for the Shema that we're about to potentially stand up for and then be seated again. Um, and uh, we're going to explore something about this blessing, which is how it was extracted from our tradition, but also modified from the part of our tradition from which it was grafted, from which it was taken. So first, let's read it out loud. Let's have somebody read it in the Hebrew as it appears in the Sidor. Can someone read it, please, either from your Sidor or from the sheet? Baruch. It won't be a bracha levatala. It won't be a blessing in vain because A, we're studying it, and B, it's a beautiful blessing. Um, just from the second Baruch. Should I volunteer myself? From the second Baruch? Yeah, because the second, the first one that shows up here on the page is is the second part of the uh, Baruch. This one is Baruch Adoshem Hamvarach Leolam Ba'ed. Here we go. Baruch Ata Adoshem Elkenu Melech Haolam Yotzer Or Uvorei Choshech Osei Shalom Uvorei Et Ha Kol. Okay. So first, let's translate it. It's purposely not translated here. The creator of or, what is or with an olive? Light. Light. Uvore is, an, is a synonym. It's also a word for creating. And creator of choshech, of darkness. Osei, the maker of shalom, of peace, peace. or wholeness. Uvore, we just said that was also creator. Creator et um, that is for a direct object. Et is a word before a direct object. Some languages have that, like French. Ha-kol. Ha-kol is a word for everything. Ha is a, is a definitive, before a definitive noun. Kol, everything. Ha-kol. That is everything, okay? And it's almost, almost, almost a biblical quote. Would somebody like to read the English from Mark Brettler? Uh, it is a quote from my people's prayer book, which I highly recommend you as a resource to have on your shelf if you don't already. Does somebody want to read that quote? Makes peace and creates everything, which is a translation of Ose Shalom Ed, do you want to read that for us, maybe? Sure. 
makes peace and creates everything except for the last word. This is a quotation from Isaiah. Isaiah, uh, which, which reads, Hara, trouble. Hara, exactly. Hara, mm-hmm. Trouble, not hakol, everything. Biblical context makes trouble a better translation than the usual word evil because it is juxtaposed with shalom, peace, in the sense of tranquility. Very good. Okay, interesting uh, take by Mark. So I brought here for us the quote from Isaiah. I didn't bring it in its full context. If you want, if you have a Bible on your shelf, you can pull it out and look at this is 45.7 is a construction that lets us know we're talking about the 45th chapter, the seventh verse. So here is the full biblical quotation. Yotzer or uvorei choshech, osei shalom uvorei ra, ani Adonai, osei chol ele. I am Adonai, like, God as God's name, Ose Chol the maker of all of those, all of these, all those things. So I form light and create darkness. I make, um, I make wheel. That's very interesting. And create woe. Is wheel a word that you know? It's very interesting. What does wheel mean? I don't know. Okay, you think that's a typo or you think that's a real word that I've never heard of in my life before? Yeah. I feel like I'm being punked. That's funny. I know a lot of very fancy words. It doesn't feel like a fancy word. I don't know, but maybe. I, the Lord, do all these things. Great. Does he, you see how much, how little attention I pay to translations? I just <laughs> try to translate myself. So that's, I get myself into trouble that way. Okay. So does everybody understand basically looking at the juxtaposition of this verse and the verse that you see either here on the screen or in your door? the difference between how the quote uh, appears in Isaiah and how the quote appears in the book. Everyone see that so far? Okay, so now here we have Judith Plaskow, and she also happens to be quoted in that same volume of my people's prayer book. Here is her take explaining to us what's going on. Would someone like to read this for us? Makes peace and creates everything, the blessings? Just, I looked up wheel. Uh-huh. That's definitely a typo. Okay, wonderful. I'm so glad to hear that because I think that that is nonsense. A wheel is a red swollen mark left on the flesh by a blow or pressure. Yeah, no, that's that's definitely not a translation of shalom. So good. <laughs> I'm glad you looked that up. Oh, what a funny thing. Um, I'll have to go into Safari and correct that for them. Great. So um, Judith Plaskow now. <laughs> so she's going to give her take on this. She's going to let us know. This is a little bit more of an in-depth take on what's happening here and the rendering uh, and the changing from Ose Shalom Vare et hara, the trouble or the evil, depending on how you translate it, and why it becomes et hakol. So let's let's read here the blessings surrounding the Shema. Does someone want to read for us? Denise or Annie, do you want to read? I can read. Okay, Denise, go for it. Okay. Makes peace and creates everything. The blessings surrounding the Shema are replete with images of divine power. But here, the liturgy sidesteps the ultimate expression of that power. God's responsibility for evil. In rendering Isaiah 45.7, I form light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. As who forms light and creates darkness makes peace and creates everything. The rabbis introduce a euphemism that avoids attributing evil to God. Of course, it is true that everything includes woe and evil. But the word conjures and is probably meant to conjure the plentitude of creation rather than its destructive or negative aspects. 
This alteration of Isaiah raises the question of truth and liturgy. Do we want a liturgy that names the truths of our lives, however painful or difficult they may be? Or do we want a liturgy that elevates and empowers, that focuses on the wondrous aspects of creation alone? Are these goals in conflict, or can hearing truth itself be empowering? In the Book of Blessings, Marcia Falk comes down on the side of truth. If God is all in all, she argues, then the divine domain must include the bad, and the bad ought to be named. Her blessing here says, let us bless the source of life, source of darkness and light, heart of harmony and chaos, creativity and creation. What does it mean, however, to pay your, pray to a God who is heart of chaos? The naming of this truth, that if one God is responsible for the universe, then that God must be responsible for evil, surely elicits feelings of protest as much as reverence. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Abram asks God, arguing over the intended destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. We might pose analogous questions in the context of and in relation to the liturgy as a whole. Shall not the king leave room for his subjects? Shall not the father honor the independence of his children? Is it not our obligation to struggle against the bad in the universe, whatever its origins? This our prayer might need to be expanded in the direction of protest. Good. So I see two major questions being posed by Judith Plasco here. What major questions do you see being posed here by her? What major questions do you see? Uh, I see one question that's about God, and I see one question that's about human beings. Yeah, Annie. Do we want to, to describe God only in a positive and uplifting, only doing the good things, or do we want to describe all of the things that God creates, including the not so good? Good. So that's yet in a third question. The, the third question is about our liturgy itself. So the question is, what kind of a liturgy are we looking for when we open up our prayer book? Are we looking for a description of God that encompasses also the things that God may or may not be responsible for that causes us to ponder who is behind the things in the world that are dark and chaotic and evil and bad, including God. Good. What questions about God does this change in liturgy raise for us? This like it's kind of asking like how do we reconcile what we see in the world and things that don't feel like good things. And how do we reconcile that with our connection to God, who's supposed to be loving and good and stuff? Good. So some of the basic questions about the omnipotence of God. Uh, so do we believe in God, as Isaiah would put it, as God being all powerful? Right. So um, has anybody here ever explored um, uh, with Rabbi Artson or with anyone else the concept of process theology? Is that a familiar concept to anybody here? Okay. So bear with me for just a second here. So most theologies explore God as being all omni uh, in, three, in three ways, in three aspects. Hang on just one second. So those three aspects are omniscient, omnip 
present um, and um, and omnibenevolent. And um, the concept here is, can God be, the concept with processiology is that not all three prongs can be can be present all at once. They can't all stand at once. Like a God who is all all knowing cannot uh, cannot um, possibly, and who is present at all times cannot possibly also be all good because God cannot have chosen not to do something if God was also present there for uh for something terrible that was happening the, that was happening in the world so that the the way that we explain away bad things happening in the world is that god either wasn't there or didn't know about it or god isn't good right so one of those things has to falter one of those legs has to falter in some way so one of the things that this piece of liturgy is making us wrestle with is god's omnipotence is god's is god's uh power god's presence in the world, okay? God's omnipresence or omnipotence, God's ability to do something about um, what's happening in the world, okay? And we, we, might, we might believe in that somewhat, we might believe in that not at all, we might believe in that completely, right? We might be, we might be uh, atheist to agnostic to, to deist to, about it, right? Thomas Jefferson taking God completely out of it. Like God used to be here. God was once wondrous. And now, like, I believe God used to talk to our prophets, but I don't really believe God operates in the world anymore. To believing that you can pray to an active God in this world right now. Uh, and that this this piece of liturgy makes us wrestle with that a little bit. I I also see this... Um, I also see this asking questions in the end, um, particularly in discussing the fault piece here. When when she asked the question, shall not the king leave room for his subjects? Shall not the father honor the independence of his children? What's she asking there? What's our responsibility? Like, what are we responsible for? What are humans responsible as opposed to God? Which and she's... also, how far does that power extend? Right. Omnip- I... Right, because... Because if you're a king, but like, you know, how dominating of a king are we talking about? Right. It's it's basically the flip side of omnipotence is free will. So uh, if God is not responsible for the evil in the world or for all the evil in the world, then human beings are. Um, and so p- p- part of this is to take human, you know, is to take human responsibility. It's it's just an it's an enormously important um, it's an enormously important thing is to to take uh, is to understand how much responsibility we are allowing ourselves to take for the evil in the world and how much we're allowing God to hold. Sometimes That's it feels question. good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, please. So, okay, but the, and this might not be the moment for that question. I don't know. Um, but I know, like in Hasidic teachings, there's sort of this the way they reconcile it is kind of by saying, well, we don't have enough perspective to know. And so things that seem terrible to our perception in the bigger picture, we might have a different understanding. And that that's what 
those blessings are kind of talking about that that everything is one meaning everything comes from god and from a god perspective it all makes sense even though we don't necessarily tap into that sense all the time does that does that fit in here at all hmm frame frame it as a question one more time it's so deep um oh god i don't know if i can do it (laughs) i think Um, you can well well what i understood the hasidic understanding is that like that maybe things that seem bad to us yeah from a god perspective might got not it. Be. And, okay. And the examples they got were things that were very distant mm. from us, right? That like okay. when Joseph gets sold, that seems like the okay. worst tragedy, but it ends up saving everybody, things like that. Okay. Okay. So good, good, good. Okay, good. So here is what here is what I will say. Here's what I will say about that. From a theological perspective, of course, there is always room to say particularly when we're reading a biblical story and talking about the distant past, there is always room for us to read the story and marvel at Joseph's ability to turn to his brothers and say, I want you to know that I'm doing okay, because I understand that this was all for a reason, right? From a pastoral perspective, what I want to say to your faces and your name, Denise, but I know your face is there somewhere. Um, from But from a pastoral perspective, perspective, I would I want to say to you and to anybody who's listening to this, oh, look, your face, um, to anyone listening to this is the most important thing in the world is to allow the person who is experiencing it in a, a, a story that is to them a painful experience in any way to allow for them and only them to make the choice to say that this is happening as part of a story that might be for good and not to uh, and not to try to redefine that as part of a silver lining. So this is the difference between external toxic positivity and somebody allowing someone to, to allowing somebody the space to reframe a negative experience for the positive in their life. We always want to leave space for somebody to say, I will eventually find room in my life to take this terrible experience and find the good in it. But we, what we don't want to do ever, particularly what I want to watch myself as, a, as somebody who is often in a position of power as a pastoral caregiver, I, I don't want to put myself in a position where I accidentally say to somebody else, don't worry, this terrible experience is actually part of the good of your story, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, so this is, uh, this is hard. Like by by having it this way in the liturgy, does it sort of kind of even subconsciously or subliminally just kind of suggest to us like a yoga suggestion, like keep this in mind, you might need it at some point so that we have like a familiarity with that concept and we might tap into that at some point during our life. Yeah. As a tool for processing yeah. terrible things. I I love I love the idea that some yeah no I'm sorry go on 
No, I, I love that you believe in the, in, the, in the idea that somebody might harness that at some point for themselves. I, I, think, that's, um, I think that's beautiful, Denise. That in my, I, what I think is so beautiful about that is that this whole time in this class, what I've been saying to everyone is, I want you to learn this liturgy so that you're basically coming to the gym and exercising and building up muscles for yourself so that you're familiarizing yourself with this liturgy so that one day, if God forbid, you find yourself in the position that you need to cry out in prayer, you have this set of muscles, so to speak, you have this language, this liturgy to call on, right? So yeah, if you for some reason can look at the map of the world and you can look and stare directly into a bad situation and say, even in this chaos, I can locate God. Even in this chaos, I can locate God. Even, by the way, so that you can direct your anger at God and have a conversation with God about it. Because maybe that's the productive thing to ask God why God has burdened you with these things, because maybe that's the productive thing in the moment. Whatever that is, then yes, Denise, I do believe that. I do believe that for some reason, this could be a very productive piece of liturgy for somebody who wants to locate it there. I also think that this can be a very painful piece of liturgy for somebody who, you know, who, who knows, uh, who knows, Tanakh well enough to know that what we're really winking at here is God's behind the chaos too. God is capable of letting chaos free in the world too. Yeah. This is tough stuff. Let's look at what Lawrence Kushner and Ramya Pollan also have to say about this. Um, this is this is really this is the last piece I'm going to take us down the road and I'm I'm going to read this for us, okay? This is also um in the volume but it comes from Lawrence Kushner's own stuff as well. You can find this in his books I think too. They're also wonderful writers. Who forms light and creates darkness? If God created the sun and moon and all the heavenly luminaries on the 4th day of creation, then where did the light that God created on the first day come from? pause there for just a second. Do you remember where we are? Do you remember that that's what, what we're about to get into? Because you've been in this class, you know, navigating the C-door, that that's the theme that we're in, right? Lawrence Kushner knows that too. He's going there because we're talking about the blessings having to do with light. This is about Yotzer Or and going to um, Yotzer Hameorot is the blessing that we're also leading up to. Okay, so he's about to tell us this story a little bit. So this is from Chagiga, the Talmud and Chagiga in uh, 12a, offers a daring solution, one with a far with far reaching implications for Jewish spirituality. It suggests that the first light of creation was not optical, but spiritual, a light so dazzling that in it, Adam and Chava were able to see from one end of space to the other end of time. The Zohar amplifies the legend. Rabbi Yitzchak said, the light created by God in the act of creation flared from one end of the universe to the other and was hidden away, reserved for the righteous in the world to come, as is written. Light is sown for the righteous. Does that sound familiar? How does that go? Psalm 97. Take a look back in your C door. This sounds familiar to you, right? Light is sown for the righteous. Psalm 97. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. Or Zarua Latzadik, Yishrei Lev Simcha from Friday night services. Okay? So 
Very, very good, Annie. You got to even before I could point you back in the sea door to it. So that's from our Friday night services from from um, Kabbalat Shabbat, uh, which is makes a lot of sense because Zohar is beloved by the Kabbalists. Okay, then the worlds will become uh, will be fragrant and all will be one. But until the world to come arrives, it, meaning this light, the supernal light, is stored and hidden away. Rabbi Judah responded, if the light were completely hidden, the world would not exist for even a moment. Rather, it is hidden and sown like a seed that gives birth to other seeds and fruit. Thereby, the world is sustained. Every single day, a ray of that light shines into the world, keeping everything alive. With that ray, God feeds the world. And everywhere that Torah is studied at night, one thread-thin ray appears from that hidden light and flows down upon those absorbed in it. Since the first day, the light has never been fully revealed, but it is vital to the world, renewing each day the act of creation. So that's the translation from the Zohar. If the light of the first day of creation, that light of ultimate awareness, in other words, were to fall into the hands of the wicked, they would use it to destroy the world. It's true. If we ourselves could see into the future, we'd make a terrible mess of things. Yet if God were to withdraw the light from creation entirely, deprive it of even the possibility of ultimate awareness, the universe would collapse, implode. So how did the Holy One solve the problem? God hid the light, but only for the righteous in the time to come. Now, if that be so, asks Elimelech of Lizhensk in his Noam Elimelech, that was his writing in the 18th century, why do we say here in the present tense, who forms light and creates darkness? Why do we say Yotzer or and not the one who formed lights? Right? Why do, why do we not say it in the past tense? The explanation he suggests is that God in an act of grace of Chain is continually creating light. And thus, to the righteous, the hidden light of creation, ultimate awareness is revealed each and every day. It appears to them that even as they are discovering light, God is continuously creating it for them. They feel as if they are actually growing into newly fashioned levels of awareness, each brighter than the one before. What does this Zohar do? Where does this take us from the Yotzer or Uvore Choshech, the conception of God as the creator of light? Where does this Zohar text as a gloss on our understanding of this blessing? Where does it take our minds and our souls in praying this text? How would it change the way that you pray this text? It, it takes you to a place of, of, of continu- continually continuously continually looking for the light looking for the spiritual right that that each day you have a new opportunity mm. to look for that yes yes that it is it absolutely points to this it's grammar but it's enlightening grammar pun intended that allows us to think about god being a first of all actively in our world Right? Just as I was talking about before, imagining God as continuously being involved in the creation of the world and that light is undergoing creation all the time in God's hands, so to speak. Good. What else does it do for you in terms of prayer? I'll tell you that for me, uh, 
I often think of this section of prayer as having to do so much with God's involvement in the celestial lights of the world and the universe, having to do with going back to the act of creation. And I think that this definitely transforms the text into being about light as a metaphorical, a stand-in, a conception of light as anticipated revelation, right? Light is revelatory, light is shining upon the future to come. It makes me think about the Eastern concept of third eye and the pineal gland and this idea that there's a space in our brain represented by the color purple and the and the element of air where we can, um, where we anticipate things, right? This is all Eastern conception. It's not our Western Judaic conception, but but it's real to people who engage in um, in the visualization um, and a sense um, of anticipation of of worlds to come. And that's what the Zohar is describing as this idea that to tzadikim, to righteous ones, God's light is revelation. That they're learning of Torah is their uncovering, their revealing of what God wants them to understand about the world, right? They're like digging and revealing what is to come. And that when they get to the world to come, they're going to see it all. That's when the full revelation comes. It totally adds depth to this one liner, this one little line of liturgy. Okay, so that was layer, 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 layer deep on this one liner of prayer. Should we do one other set of learning on the same part of the text? I wanted to take us uh, down a totally different road. I wanted to take us back to the Mishnah, which is codified around the year 200 CE as an oral text, a conversation among rabbis uh, that gets codified around the time of the destruction of the Second Temple, codified meaning that the canon of the oral conversation is closed, it's later written down, and it becomes the first geological layer of the Talmudic conversation. So when someone says Talmud, they're talking about the Mishnah plus additional Gemara conversation that gets added to it. That's what this meant by Talmud. Okay, so Mishnah is contained within there, but the Mishnah is the first layer, and it's a standalone oral text that later gets written down. Here's Mishnah Tamid. This is the fifth chapter and the first Mishnah within it. And it's describing something that contains really familiar concepts, but it's describing these familiar liturgical concepts as happening in a world of priests, because their reality is still a reality of sacrifice and a priestly system. So these are familiar liturgical concepts, but it's happening kind of in a bizarro land, okay? It's happening in a priestly reality, and it's happening not exactly, although really in a familiar way, it's happening not exactly as we would imagine them happening. So can somebody read for us this Mishnah Tamid? It's not so long. And I think that even the Hebrew words are kind of familiar. I'll read it. After the priests. After the priests completed laying the parts of daily offering on the ramp. They went to the chamber of hewn stone to recite Shema. Pausing there for just a second, Annie, I just want to clarify something for both people listening and for those of you who are reading along in this edition here. I want to clarify that uh, the um, the Hebrew text that's happening here on the right 
it coincides with the bolded text in the English and the Mishnah. And the unbolded text is, I think it's Steinsaltz here. It's, a, it's basically illumination that's helping us read it in plain English. Okay, so that's not actually there in the Mishnah. So it actually starts on Amar Lahem Hamimune, which is the appointed priest, the appointed one said. Okay, so that's why it's so much shorter looking on the right, is that what Annie's just reading is an, is an elucidation. It's an illumination on that. Just wanted to clarify. All right, so they completed laying the parts of the daily offering on the ramp, and then the appointed priest. The appointed priest who oversaw the lotteries in the temple said to the priest, recite a single blessing of the blessings that accompany Shema. And the members of the priestly watch recited a blessing. And then they recited the Ten Commandments, Shema, Bahaya in Shamoa, hard to read it. Alliteration. You can, yeah, that's perfect. Bahaya in Shamoa, and then skip the parentheses, and? And Bayomer. The standard formula of Shema. Additionally, they blessed with the people three blessings. These blessings were true and firm. The blessings of redemption recited after the Shema, and the blessing of the temple service, which also, which is also a blessing recited in the Amidah prayer, and the priestly benediction recited in the form of a prayer, without the lifting of hands that usually accompanies the blessing. And on Shabbat, when the new priestly watch would begin its service, the priests would add one blessing recited by the outgoing priestly watch, that love, fraternity, peace, and friendship should exist among the priests of the incoming watch. Okay. So what are they, what are they describing here? The order of the service. Yeah, it's like, here's our liturgy. Here's the order of the service. So they have, you know, they have, priestly stuff that they're doing they have uh they have ritual slaughtery sacrifice things that they're doing and they also have an order of the service that involves shema because shema is uh is torahitically commanded to be done and there's actually a an order of shema that needs to be done and shema is very recognizably in order here right does that look like it's in, in order? I'll read it in the Hebrew here. Karu, they called out, um, oh, sorry, let's start from the Shema. I'm just using Karu to start there because Kriat Shema is still the way that we refer to it. It's the recitation of. And then Shema, Vehayaim Shemoa, that's the second paragraph of it. And then Vayomer, meaning Vayomer Adonai, El Moshe Lemor, Daber, Abene Israel, still the third paragraph of the Shema. Okay. Um, so that's still there. The reason why I included this here has to do with something that is the inverse of what we studied so far in this class, which is there's something here that doesn't appear in our liturgy anymore. What is it? Annie read the something. No, I mean, I'm with you, but technically speaking, when it says Uva Shabbat Mosifin, they we still moose off. So I'm yes, technically we don't do that but there's a there's a recitation of something here that we no longer recite the blessing to the from the outgoing if to into the incoming i don't know we don't do the aseratad devarim we don't say the ten commandments oh that's true we do not say the ten commandments have you ever thought about the fact that we don't say the ten commandments that they don't appear in our liturgy has that ever crossed your mind before anyone ever asked you about that 
Does that strike you as weird, or do you think that that seems pretty normal? I mean, now that you mention it, it seems, you know, but, but I never noticed, really. What do you think about Jews and Ten Commandments? On the one hand, do the Aserat HaDibrot seem pretty important to Jews? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. On the other hand, yeah. They're guiding principles. They're not daily things you recite daily. Are they guiding principles? What are they, though? Well, they should be. Are they more important than the other commandments? Well, they're like fundamental, no? Like don't murder and believe in God and... You know, like, if you don't have those things, it's going to all fall apart. So this became a bit of a problem in at some point, uh, it sort of Christologically, this became a bit of a problem because for sure, a Sarah Bro have a, a, a super righteous place in our tradition for several reasons. First of all, the repeated twice in our five books of Moses, right? They're repeated twice just in the in the five books of the Torah. Second of all, the fact that they are the first 10 utterances of command uh, and that they have a special liturgical recitation tradition when it comes to calling them out in the Torah, they're written, they're scribed in a certain way. They definitely have their own special tradition of being written in that way. They carry with them a special kind of a weight such that by the time you get to the era of the Mishnah, you can tell here they retained a very special place in the tradition. But then they got too special a place in the tradition. There was a problem in that they were being lifted up as more important when it came to the commandments than the other mitzvot of the tradition, right? Like, maybe if you just kept these 10, you're good. <laughs> uh, it, it was problematic. How many commandments do we have in Judaism? How many dibrot? How many mitzvot? Yeah. Right, we have 613. We have many more commandments than these 10. These first 10 have a special place for lots of reasons, including their place in our narrative and the relationship that B'nai Israel built with God. Yeah, Annie. So, is this like the standing and sitting in the Shema, which is that you either stand or sit so that you don't give importance to one more paragraph. And so rather than pull them out, it gives them, they are no more or less important than any of the other 603. Yeah, kind of. We actually don't know the entire story of how they were abolished. We think we kind of know sociologically, but it basically gets told at a very funny story. Um, it gets recorded in the Talmud. By the time of the Talmud, we know that it was taken out of our tradition. So it's taught in a Brita. It's taught in an early teaching uh, that Rabbi Natan said um, in the Gvulin, in the border zones, Bikshu Likrot Kane. They, they wanted, they requested to... Um, to recite them such as such suchly <laughs> Ella Shekvar Bitlum. They'd already outlawed it. Basically, they'd already nullified doing that. Mipnei Taromitaminin, the grievance of the heretics. So basically, people were misusing, misappropriating. It was a problem to have them. It, they were being uh, they were being misappropriated and misused, and it was becoming an issue. These Ten Commandments were receiving an inappropriate placement in terms of how they were being uh, referenced, and so they were considered to have too um, foregrounded a placement in our liturgical system. So it was removed from our daily recitation. 
was taken out of our liturgy. I'm curious if, you know, when they refer to the heretics, because you're saying that even during the the um, Mishnah, that it was still sort of had a place of prominence. So isn't it about the time when Christianity started its ascent? Right. Right. I have to do a lot more tracing work to find out which uh, this is where you've come to the right place, Ed. You've come to the right movement because conservative Judaism uh, has its roots in um, positive historical uh, exploration of um, different Gersaot, different versions of the Mishnah and the Tosefta, which are either parallel or slightly earlier, slightly later documents um, that explore uh, uh, that that lead up and to the conversation that that takes place in the Talmud, and it might be that in different versions that because these these oral conversations get recorded in different places, written down in different places, slightly different ways. This beraita, as it said, the saying, as it's it said, as it's taught, as it's tanyad here. Okay, it might be taught slightly different ways in slightly different places. So I could trace it back. And then find out, well, which heretics were they probably talking about? And so what was probably the issue at play? Um, some Sidorim kept the Ten Commandments in much longer than others. So depending on which geographical region you were in, that the, the Ten Commandments stayed in longer than in others. But eventually, it disappears from all living traditions that I know of. I could be wrong. It'd be interesting if someone picked up this podcast in France and they're like, here in France, we still say the Ten Commandments. How did you not know? It would be very funny if, if that were true and I was just incorrect and I would love to be corrected. I don't think that's the case. I don't think there's any living tradition that has kept it in. Um, that's not true for other pieces of our tradition. For example, the... Um, the tradition of uh, reciting korbanot, reciting which sacrifices were said, has been taken out of conservative sidurim, more liberal sidurim for years. It has not been taken out of uh, more traditional sidurim. It remains in there. So there are some things that remain in sidurim and get taken out of others. Others are universally taken out. Um, so you're saying that the Ten Commandments across all different uh, church denominations have been stricken, right? Right, and not just denominations, but also, um, importantly, across um, different ethnic and regional traditions. Right? Right. So you'll often have, I'll offer an example along along these lines, you'll often have um, radically different traditions liturgically when it comes to including huge chunks of biblical recitation in books, for example, on Friday nights, in many Sephardi traditions, it's customary to recite the entirety of Shir Hashirim, the book of the of Song of Songs, during Kabbalat Shabbat. The whole thing. We don't do that in Ashkenazi traditions, but it's very common in many Middle Eastern and Sephardi traditions. So basically, it's just no matter what, it's across all aspects. It's, it's right, and so in in this case, you're talking about all aspects, which means which which means that it's likely to trace back even further, even older, right? That's not always the case when it comes to universally taking something out of our tradition. Sometimes the roots of of something are more catastrophic, like we had to take something out because they're a censure. And those stories are really interesting, but that's not the case with this. 
All right, I'm going to stop the screen share. Uh, this was really fun to explore with you. Something that's in the sea door and we went deep on it. Something that's no longer in the sea door and we went deep on it. Um, really fun to explore with all of you. I hope that you'll consider taking the other class if you don't. I don't mind your other really wonderful classes to come and explore. If you want to learn more about the sea door and you'd like to take kind of another route, Tuesday mornings, just after morning minion around eight something in the morning, Rabbi Avi Havivi teaches a sea door class for about 10 or 12 minutes every single Tuesday morning. He's been doing it for years. It's also on our podcast. So if you can't be there live, you can catch up on it. Uh, and I highly recommend that class. And there are a, a bunch of new classes that you might expect to pop up also this spring as we kind of turn over the adult education season. But this has been really fun. Thanks for joining. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.